Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot com. Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is SiriusXM Progress. Welcome to it. Thanks, as always, to the great Dean Obadala and his wonderful staff for being such a wonderful live lead-in. Thanks to all the great programming on SiriusXM Progress all day that softens you up for a show like this. I'm John Fugel saying, welcome to the Night Spot. We are coming to you live from New York City. That's where producer Thea Harper and I are, our executive producer, our boss, our Mac Daddy, and our Daddy Mac, Chris Hauselt. He broadcasts this thing out of the South Carolina studios. Welcome. I just came back from doing a quick show, a storytelling show called Selected Shorts, where actors read literature uh, at Symphony Space, Packed House, Claire Danes was on the bill. I I totally, I I almost missed it. I had the wrong night in my calendar. I ran there and, and was able to cover and then raced here to the show. I still have my flop sweat all over Claire Danes' hands for meeting her, but it was a lot of fun. Thanks to everyone at Symphony Space. And what a show we have for you guys tonight. I'm so glad you're with us. It's been a very eventful day. We are very pleased to announce uh, on the day Kevin McCarthy leaves us, the congressman who predicted weeks ago that he would be leaving the Congress, uh, that would be Representative Eric Swalwell from the great state of California. He joins us tonight to talk about what it's like to kick George Santos out of the Congress. Also, Adrian Walker of the Boston Globe is here. They're doing a new series on the Charles Stewart shootings up in Boston. You remember that happened in the late 80s? This guy and his wife were both shot, and his wife was heavily pregnant. She died. He said that they had been carjacked by a black man who then shot them and left them in the bad part of town. Uh, Of course, the cops believed it. The media believed it. They ran with it. There was no black man. It was all a lie. Charles Stewart committed suicide. But the ripple effects of that lie and of all the institutions that swallowed it whole have haunted Boston for decades. And they have a brand new podcast and series uh, co-produced by HBO. It's really, really great. I'm thrilled to talk about that. Bob Seska will be here to talk about Donald Trump discussing what kind of dictator he would be. And of course, Dr. Tracy Pearson is with us in hour number three to talk about um, blurry pics of A. Johnson. That would be Speaker Johnson and the blurred photos he tried to release of the January 6th terrorists. So there's a lot to cover. We're so glad you're with us. We're at 866-997-4748. Hey, coming up on the show this Friday, we're going to have a lot of laughs. We will be welcoming back to the show, Rachel Dratch of Saturday Night Live. 
She's also in my favorite movie of the year, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. She and Irene Bremis, our very funny friend, have a new podcast called Woo Woo. It's all about supernatural things and aliens and Bigfoots and ghosts. They had me on as a guest a couple weeks ago, and it was so hilarious, I asked them to come on and talk about it. So we will have a very non-political hour with Rachel Dratch and Irene. Also, on Friday, a very special hour with TV's Frank, Frank Conniff. We're trying to get Frank to come by here more on Fridays because, well, Fridays with Frank has a certain ring to it, doesn't it? In the meantime, another mass shooting, friends. This one took place on the campus of UNLV. Multiple victims were reported and the suspect is dead. Meanwhile, the Department of Justice announced war crimes charges against four Russian soldiers for their part in atrocities carried out in Ukraine. At the same time, a Ukrainian special forces team has assassinated a former member of Ukraine's parliament who is now a Putin propagandist. And they did this just outside of Moscow. Senate Republicans have now blocked further debate on the $100 billion plus proposal to aid Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and it includes border funding because they said it wasn't enough uh, border policy changes. It was a mostly party-line vote of 49 to 51. It did not reach the 60-vote threshold to continue debate on the bill. They are trying to stop us from supporting Ukraine against Putin's genocidal invasion because that's what Putin wants. And whatever Putin wants, I can promise you this, the entire Republican Congress will get around to doing a Nevada grand jury has announced felony charges against six people who served on Trump's slate of fake electors in 2020. Stanford had an amazing study, 22 sets of identical twins, but they raised them each on separate diets. We've seen lots of studies showing a vegan diet yields an overall healthier body, but Stanford showed it's true with identical twins. And Norman Lear, the man who brought us Sanford and Son one day at a time, all in the family, Maud, good times, Mary Hartman, Mary Hardman and the Jeffersons has, of course, left us at age 101. He changed sitcoms forever. He changed comedy forever. And he changed the way families talk about issues around the TV for the better. And he also co-founded the nonprofit People for the American Way. And as we speak, as we record this, some of you listen live. You're our evil army of the night, and we welcome and love you. Some of you listen the next day on the DAP, on demand, on the Fugelsang podcast. You are the Daywalkers. We we love you guys as well. Uh, for you guys, this has already happened. But as we are broadcasting live, the fourth Republican presidential primary debate is going on right now in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. And I'm really honored you're not watching and joining us instead because you're not missing much. It's the fourth one. It's sad. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who is only 43 points behind Trump. Former South Carolina governor and U.N. ambassador Nikki Haley, who is uh, polling 47 points behind Trump. Businessman and trust fund douche Vivek Ramaswamy, who is 54 points behind Trump. And former New Jersey governor Chris Christie and friend of this show, who is a scant 56 points behind Donald Trump. You've been missing a lot so far. Ron DeSantis was talking about gender mutilation of minors. And I was like, wait, is he coming out against circumcision? Uh, it, it, it's it's been pretty rough so far there. You're watching Vivek Ramaswamy just try to beat up Nikki Haley. He's been reminding us that Biden is a fascist and woke and that he's a petulant man, baby, trust fund dude, bro, who doesn't know what words mean. And Nikki Haley is telling the truth about Putin, but maybe the Republican voters will forgive her for that. We can already call it the winner of the bait is Donald Trump once again, for making the very wise decision to skip the whole damn thing. These four are slugging it out as we speak, but only one can be a very distant second. All right, 
Let's get to the big story of the day, though. Kevin McCarthy, you know, (laughs) I'll never forget earlier this year, way back in January, when he kept losing so many votes in the same room where he voted to throw out your vote. But eventually he became speaker after 15 votes, and he went after the GOP's plan to fight inflation, fight immigration, and fight crime. All of those things involve Hunter Biden's laptop. His rise was swift, and his fall was swifter. At the beginning of this year, this guy became Speaker of the House. By the end of the fall, his own party kicked him out of the job, and now, as of today, the only Speaker in history to be voted out of the job has said, Screw you guys, I'm going home. That's right. Two months after, he has announced he's leaving Congress by year's end. This guy went from weak. He was very weak. He he went from holding Donald Trump accountable for January 6th to groveling before him at Mar-a-Lago because he was hungry. He went from weak and dishonest and weaselly, and it only went downhill from there. He humiliated himself to get this job, and he could not hold on to it. And right now, as you guys know, the House Republicans currently hold 221 seats to the Democrats' 213 They can't afford any more defections on party-line votes. Here is Kevin McCarthy after a year of almost nonstop humiliation at the hands of his own team, announcing he is leaving Congress this month because screw you people in Bakersfield who elected me to be a public servant. If I can't have power, I don't want the job. Here's Kevin. Today I am driven by the same purpose that I felt when I arrived in Congress. But now... It is time to pursue my passion in a new arena. While I'll be departing the House at the end of this year, I will never, ever give up fighting for this country that I love so much. To all those who have supported me through the years, especially our constituents, thank you from the bottom of my heart. We did our part. And when the stakes were the highest, we rose to the challenge. We were willing to risk it all, no matter the odds, no matter the personal cost. (laughs) Simply put, we did the right thing. Oh, thank you. God bless you. And God bless America. Oh, it burns us. It burns us. I mean, let's let's we got to break down a lot of this here, because with a brief exception for about seven minutes after the January 6th attack, Kevin McCarthy's lips have been hot glued to Donald Trump's gigantic Big Mac stuffed posterior. It took him 15 ballots and so many concessions to the Nazi clod of his caucus to get the speakership. And the Nazi clod got rid of him anyway. And he's playing like this is all part of a grand plan. I mean, they freezed up your Congress for weeks trying to replace him, chose the most hard right speaker in House history they could possibly get. So what happens now? Well, Kevin called himself a free agent. He's now able to endorse primary candidates. He wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal today saying he will continue to recruit our country's best and brightest to run for elected office. This has triggered a lot of new concerns among Republicans about their very narrow majority. Some Republicans are terrified because these closer margins will further empower the far right of the party to totally hijack bills for leverage. We've seen it happen a lot. There's no reason to think they won't do it more now. They have a little bit of power. The less their party has power, the more party the most selfish members of this selfish caucus assume to take. With him leaving and Democrats aggressively going after that seat of George Santos, which was vacated last week, it could be down to only a two-vote majority as early as mid-February. And Congressman Bill Johnson just announced he's retiring early next year, which means the Republican House margin could be just one vote. 
during an election year. Marjorie Taylor Greene, who normally doesn't say anything clever, said today, hopefully no one dies. Now, <laughs> Matt Gates, who was really the, the, the chief architect of Kevin McCarthy's life becoming a living hell, um, he celebrated it and attacked him for not being a team player. He said, I don't know anyone else who would just say, well, if I can't run this place, I'm going to leave. Nancy Pelosi, for all her flaws, and there were many, at least she stuck around. And now I'm defending or at least agreeing with Matt Gates after agreeing with Marjorie Taylor Greene. Because, yeah, Nancy Pelosi lost the speaker's gavel. In fact, if memory serves, she lost it twice. And at neither point did she say, screw you guys, I'm going to cash out and be a lobbyist. No. Pelosi stayed in Congress because she was there to represent the people, because that's what public servants are supposed to do. It's basic civics. But the modern Republican Party, as you guys know, has become a cult of corrosive selfishness. John Kenneth Galbraith said in 1967, the modern Republican Party is engaged in one of mankind's oldest pursuits. The search to make selfishness seem like a virtue. And that's what they do. The platform is selfish. The politicians are selfish. They sell selfishness to voters. They tell them that greed is your birthright and that looking out for yourself is how we do better. To that end, the party tries for decades, my entire adult life, to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. That's the entire playbook. Kevin McCarthy proved it today. Remember back in the uh, in the early days of Obama? the young guns. Remember, we were told, oh, these hot young Republicans are here to change the face of the party. Who were they? Let me think. Uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Paul Ryan, and uh, Eric Cantor. All three right wing, indistinguishable from Newt Gingrich in terms of ideology, but they were branded as the young guns, the new generation of Republicans. And what happened to all of them? They groveled and groveled and groveled to the most racist anti-Obama factions in their party. That's the Tea Party. Now they're MAGA. They were the Tea Party back then. They grovel to these racists. They enabled these racists. They never, ever told these racists to stop with their horrible things they said about Michelle Obama or that Barack Obama wasn't born here. And sure enough, in all cases, the racists eventually, the bigots, the far right, those more selfish than the young guns, took them all out. Eric Cantor was taken out by Dave Bratt, primaried in his own district. He was the head of the Republicans in the Congress. But he wasn't racist enough. They got Dave Bratt, lost him. Paul Ryan, you know what happened there. He tried to oppose Donald Trump, then gave Donald Trump everything he wanted. It wasn't enough. They got rid of him. And now the last of the young guns has been put out to pasture. And it proves he was never a public servant, people of Bakersfield. Kevin McCarthy was always in it for Kevin McCarthy. And no one else. One McCarthy critic told Axios that he's probably going to use millions in PAC funds to meddle in the races of the Republicans who have opposed him. And he's repeatedly taken aim at the eight Republicans who voted to oust him. He's already hinting this is going to be a revenge tour. I mean, he predicted that Matt Gates, who led the effort to remove him, will be kicked out of Congress. He said Matt Gates belongs in jail. Oh, in one rant, I have now agreed with Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, and Kevin McCarthy uh, on Nancy Mace. McCarthy said, if you've watched her, just her philosophy about the flip-flopping, I don't believe she wins re-election. Google the rumors about those two. And Bob Good, who also voted him out. He's facing a possible challenge from a former Navy SEAL. Uh, Kevin said, you mean the military guy? I heard something about him. Kevin McCarthy is cutting his fellow Republicans loose. Kevin McCarthy is cutting the voters in his district who sent him to Congress loose. Because Kevin McCarthy is in it for Kevin McCarthy. It's not about ideology. It's not about Christian values. It's not about the Republican Party. It's about his power.
And the irony is, in that sense, Kevin McCarthy and George Santos and Donald Trump and Newt Gingrich and Vivek Ramaswamy and Ron DeSantis, they're all exactly the same. And Kevin doesn't care. (laughs) I mean, here's my concern, though. Kevin McCarthy was ultimately forced out by people who are way more extreme than him. And McCarthy was plenty right wing. But all of these people forced out by people more extreme right wing. It's what happened to Cantor. It's what happened to Paul Ryan. One by one, the Republicans who are just really wrong and maybe dishonest, but not evil and stupid. Well, those people are being replaced by Republicans who are wrong, but also evil and stupid. It's getting harder and harder for sane or even nice or decent people in the Republican Party to be in politics. Fewer sane Republicans are stepping into the ring. Where's that going to leave us? What's that going to mean for this party? Most likely, it means it'll become more extreme, more stupid, more corrupt, more gaslighty. And it means more than ever. It's very important that the Democratic Party has extremely high voter turnout. It's what it all comes down to at this point. If it's high voter turnout, you will see Democrats elected fighting for the things you care about. And if it's low voter turnout, well, at least we know as soon as Donald Trump is president and Joe Biden's out of the Oval Office, we will never hear Hunter Biden's name again because they don't care about Hunter Biden. They don't care about the border. They don't care about abortion. They don't care about immigration. They care about themselves. And that's it. And the irony is Kevin McCarthy and Matt Gates and Lauren Boebert and Paul Gosar, they all share the same pre-existing sedition. We want to know what you guys think. We are at 866-997-4748, 866-997-GRIT. Let's go to the phones really quick before the break. Tony's on the line in Las Vegas. Tony, welcome. You're on SiriusXM Progress. Good evening. How are you doing? Good evening, John. Hi. Hi. Well, you know, um, we obviously had that active shooter, that mass shooting today here. Um, I yes, drive sir. for Uber, so um, I'm always dropping off and picking up at the UNLV campus, and it's right next to the airport. It is. So, um, it's very beautiful. And, uh, yeah, and it's, it's it just brought chaos. And um, you know, I, I how, how uh, was how was it there? I mean, did you did it affect you where you were? Were people uh, in a panic, or, or were you clear of the area? Today, I, I, I didn't work. I, uh, uh, today on Tuesdays, I usually work in the evening, so I didn't okay. work. And I saw it on TV when it came on. And then uh, my brother graduated from UNLV, so I texted him. He's a lawyer now. He got his law degree there. Great, great place. I mean, uh, we were all upset. I mean, uh, everybody gets upset. And uh, I always post on my social media when there's a mass shooting that uh, we are uh, pretty much fish in a barrel. And, and I, always, yeah. I mean, it's not hyperbole. You know, no, not uh, at all. It's true. We're all fish in a barrel. All of us. And, and these were today, these were kids in the middle of finals ready to go home for holiday break. Yeah, like I say, like I'm, I'm always picking them up. I always talk to them. Everybody, there's people from all over here. I mean, great people. They they just want to get their education, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but you know, so this I is the same day. This is the same day. Democrats tried to pass an assault weapons ban, and Republicans blocked a vote. The same day, my friend. And you know, I posted uh, a picture of their breaking news and uh, on my Facebook, and and I put, you know, just like I said before, you know, it's a matter of time before it hits you. And uh, my right wing <laughs> relatives immediately pounced on, oh, you know, now they're going to try to take the weapons and all that stuff. And I, and I yep. it's I all selfishness. About gun laws. Me, me, me. I didn't mention gun laws at all. I just posted yeah. about the, about the fucking shooting, you know. Yep. And 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 nobody else, you know, 
commentator except for like two or three. I have like two or three uh, conservative uh, relatives who I always argue with on Facebook. Yeah, I bet. And they all say the guns are they're going to confiscate guns, right? Because Bill Clinton took all those guns and Barack Obama took all those guns, too. Right. Yeah, I have one that's like that's a big time guns. This, and then I have the other one that says, "Well, we need more God. We need Jesus. We need this." You know, he's one of those. You know uh, what? So, you, know. You, you know what you say to those people? Because I have those too in my in my life, and I love them. You tell them, you know what? God gave us democracy. We're allowed to vote for politicians who want to make things safer. Are you pro life or not? <laughs> I've said a lot of your quotes because I post a lot of your quotes from Twitter. Oh, that's not that's not going to help you. Pass them off as your own. They're, 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 that's not my quotes won't help you. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, it's hilarious because I get a, other side commentary, you know, from people who are just watching and all that. They're like, "Oh my God, Tony, <laughs> you know, you're always making me laugh." But you know, not everybody posts in their in the social media because they want to avoid that that kind of yeah. argument in social media. But I mean, I, I'm happy to have it. I mean. We always, you know, try to try to, and it's relative. So, you know, we don't, we don't get angry, we don't get mad. You know, we're just arguing. But, well, I'm, I'm glad. You know, I'm glad it, you're you know? okay. I'm okay, but like I said, I, I did a couple rides earlier, but the traffic was just insane. It was just blocked. You know, it was insane. I, 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 I ended up coming home. And, uh, you know, it's insane. But, I mean, I've been watching... Can I ask one question about the location? Um, I, I, yeah. I understand that where the... We have to hit a break, but I, I understand the campus is right near the site of where the Harvest Music Festival was, where 58 people got killed in 2017 and hundreds wounded in that mass shooting. It's only a few blocks away, right, from the same it's site? not that far. Okay, so, yeah. Amazing. Where the, yeah, if you're at the UNLV campus, you make a ride on Tropicana... Uh, probably about a minute drive. You make a left on to the amazing. This is the eightieth eightieth school shooting of the year. Eightieth school shooting in this country this year. It's sad because uh, it we're just it's accepted. You know we yeah. can't do it. And, and I mean, look, look at the if you look at the Supreme Court that we have now. I mean, what chance do we really have? I mean, it's, it's sad. We have for a lot of chances. It. No, we have a lot of chances. We have a lot of chances yeah. if we organize, if we're committed. I've listened. I've witnessed too much progress in my life. I know that if we all get on the same page and fight for something, it will happen. Believe me, I didn't think we'd ever do anything about cigarettes. I didn't think we'd ever have gay marriage. I didn't think we'd ever That's- see legalized weed. We can do this. It's just I fear sometimes that every American is going to have to know someone who gets shot before we do. That's the sad part. That's what I'm always posting on on Facebook, you know, before you know it, it's going to be somebody that we know. And now, like like I said, I used to live in Chicago in the area where the last a couple yeah. mass shootings, like three mass shootings before. And, yeah. and, you know, we always know people that that are close to it or, you know, what are we going to do? You know, before you know it, it's going to happen to somebody we know. Right I mean, I go to Walmart. I go to malls. I go to the I, I go to the movies. You know, I hear you, man. Tell me, I got, I got to hit it. I got to hit a break, but I thank you for calling. I'm so glad you're okay. God bless everyone at UNLV. We'll be right back in just a moment. This is Progress. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. 
everybody, it's Michael Steele, host of the Michael Steele Podcast. Each week, I discuss key political and cultural issues joined by America's leading activists, experts, and academics for conversations that transcend political boundaries. And that's the point. I want you to join me as we work through real solutions, have honest conversations, just keeping it real, and having a little fun on the side. So listen to the Michael Steele Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Spreaker, or wherever you get your podcasts on. Because you know I love it when you do. And welcome back. If you're just joining us, Vivek Ramaswamy is like Eddie Haskell from Leave it to Beaver if he'd been up in a dark cellar all night doing tainted coke with James Woods. I'm John Fugel saying this is SiriusXM Progress. We're at 866-997-GRIT. I love Wednesdays because that's when we drag the Bob Seska himself onto our show. He is the host of The Bob Seska Show and Trek Politics, a regular voice here and on The Stephanie Miller Show. He also drops weekly columns and bonus material at his Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Show. Mr. Seska, I am so honored you'd be willing to miss the Republican debate to be with us. Hi. <laughs> yeah, I'm missing Vivek Ramaswamy's uh, over articulation. He yeah, talks I'm so sorry. very deliberately like every syllable has to be pronounced exactly well, want- as it's spelled. When you're trying that hard to impress uh, Vladimir Putin, you want him to understand every word. Come on, give the guy the yeah, break. Yeah, of course. That's right. That's right. I forgot yeah. about that. Oh, yeah. yeah he's, I- he's car- he knows all the names of the provinces of Ukraine and he's carving them up for his Vladdy right now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I, could anyone hate him more? I mean, I think everyone, literally everyone hates Vivek Ramaswamy. I think it's it's gotten to that point where it's like Ted yeah. Cruz. I mean, you got to start measuring Vivek Ramaswamy's hate based on the Ted Cruz scale, which is basically that everyone, is, everyone here's hates what I'm Ted pitching. Cruz. The cage match, yeah. pay-per-view, Vivek Ramaswamy versus George Santos. Let's balance <laughs> the budget with the revenue right now. We can do this. <laughs> That's right. I forgot about George Santos. Talk about people everyone hates. Oh, well, it's been a long time since he left the Congress. I mean, we think back way back to to Friday and tell me you haven't seen progress in your lifetime. Uh, He's out. And (laughs) as a comedy fan, I miss I miss him already. Bob, before I I jump into the the headlines, I just wanted to know if you had any comments uh, on our last caller and on the horrible situation that unfolded today at University of Las Vegas. Yeah, I was thinking about something that your previous caller said and regarding what can be done about this. Uh, you know, I think there's a prevailing wisdom out there that, well, I guess the gun people won. I guess, I guess yeah. there's no way to roll back the tide of just, you know, the, the proliferation of firearms in this country, the uh, these mass shootings that keep hurt, happening and happening and happening, and everyone's exhausted with it. And, and every time they happen, we go through the same script over and over again. It's like Mad Libs for mass shootings. We just fill in the, the proper nouns. And so um, along those lines, and thinking in terms of, how some people are perceiving the stakes of the next election, which is that, well, you know, prices are a little bit higher than they used to be. So therefore, we have to punish Joe Biden. And I think that is a knee jerk response to a complex situation that will only elect more Republicans who will make access to firearms more available. Uh, Not only that, but obviously more firearms in more places, more public places and so forth. And so to me, if you're if you're making a decision in the next election based on something like 
the price of food at the grocery store, the price of a gallon of gas. You need to look beyond that a little bit. You need to take some time and consider the consequences of that particular choice, voting against Joe Biden because gas costs X dollars per gallon or whatever the Joe Biden is old or some other semi frivolous concern that in the near term, you know, it's going to resolve itself irrespective of who's president but you're, so, you're 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 talking about critical thinking bob and in yeah, parts of this country that's right that's about as as dirty a phrase as portion control i mean you know right. the the voting for president is is really from so many people a popularity contest it still shocks me yeah. that i i talk to people almost every week who voted for obama and then voted for trump I mean, yeah. millions literally decided one day, oh, abortion should be a crime and climate science is a myth and rich people have it hard. Like it's mm-hmm. for millions of these people we're trying to reach. It's still a popularity contest. Yeah. And that's a shame. And I think what we need to do, at least as far as the next year goes, is to make some sort of effort to push back against that, mm. to kind of to not reinforce that idea to not you know cable news is doing that all the time where on cnn they're constantly ruminating over well what are voters thinking and voters are irritated about the economy and voters therefore are gonna vote against joe biden and that reinforces that idea that gives voters the uh, certain voters the uh, impetus to be able to well everyone else is doing it so we're gonna do it it's like a You know, it's like a peer pressure thing. Well, everyone believes that the, the economy sucks and it's Joe Biden's fault. So, yeah, we're going to vote against Joe Biden. And that's insane. I mean, that's absolutely insane from many, many different perspectives, economically, policy wise repercussions. But if you're at all concerned about the ongoing mass shootings that we see in this country, the only way to solve that is to elect more Democrats, to uh, reelect the president, to give him larger majorities in Congress, super majorities if we can. And I think based on the fact that, you know, gun control is popular, I, I think, yeah. among people, certainly 90%. among people. Exactly right. I mean, you've got a lot of Republicans who support some gun control measures. So these are sorts of these are the sorts of issues that I think we need to be voting on. We need to be voting based on longer term concerns like the makeup of the Supreme Court, like uh, reproductive rights, like voting rights, like the preservation of democracy, like, for example, the health of the economy. I mean, the great irony about the uh, sort of the prevailing wisdom, at least on cable news and in some of the polls, is that the economy sucks Joe Biden's fault, as I've been saying, even though Joe Biden has done significant things to improve the economy. I mean, we're down. He, he's reduced the rate of inflation by two thirds. Uh, the stock market is booming. GDP. We just had five percent GDP growth in the third quarter of this year. We've got record job creation. And that that's something that if we can keep up the momentum, if we can keep electing Democrats and not making these knee jerk decisions based on what you're feeling right now right. about the status of the economy, what, what the gas prices are, then we can actually get some shit done. We can actually roll back 
some of the proliferation of firearms and in theory get yes. an assault weapons ban. Yeah. Yes. I mean, we could do it, but it all depends on if we use the democracy we have. And of course, the media is very fond of telling us that the Senate is in definite jeopardy, even as it looks increasingly likely the Democrats might retake the House. But let me yeah. let me let me shift a bit, uh, because the former sure. um, former host of Celebrity Apprentice, Donald Trump, uh, this is going <laughs> to shock you. But he did a town hall on Fox News with Sean Hannity. He's always trying new things. Mm-hmm. And um, he said he would act like a dictator only on day one of a new administration, <laughs> which is to say, yeah. He would be a dictator if he was reelected. And um, I want to play this because here's a quick clip. This is with Sean. Trump dodged a chance to deny claims he will run a second term like a dictator. This is when Hannity asked Trump, trying to help him for a second time. We almost have to go to a break. I want to go back to this one issue, though, because the media has been focused on this and attacking you under no circumstances. You are promising America tonight. You would never abuse power as retribution against anybody. Except for day one. Except what? He's going crazy. Except for day one. Meaning? I want to close the border and I want to drill. That's not a drill. That's not that's not retribution. I got I'm gonna be I'm gonna be, you know, he keeps (laughs) we love this guy. He says, You're not gonna be a dictator, are you? I said, no, 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 other than day one. We're closing the border. And we're drilling, drilling, drilling. After that, I'm not a dictator. Okay, Okay, a lot of stupid there, Bob. But this guy is facing 91 criminal charges in four separate jurisdictions. He's floating plans to vastly expand his own authority, put a bunch of flunkies and loyalists into the federal bureaucracy, dismantle the Justice Department's uh, independence. And he's calling his enemies vermin and saying that generals should be elected for treason. Hannity gives him the most softball question possible. Bob, Mm. the question is, should his comments about being a dictator be taken seriously? Or is this just so guys like you and me flip out and Republicans laugh at us? I tend to not put any uh, weight into what Donald Trump says because Donald Trump is full of shit and Donald Trump is, uh, you know, feeds people what they want to hear promising his disciples jetpacks made of beef and all the rest whatever he's promising and so what i'm concerned about the thing that freaks me out about that exchange is the very fact that sean hannity had to ask that question when was the last time a presidential candidate sitting in a a forum a town hall whatever you want a debate was the last time a presidential candidate was asked hey you're gonna be a dictator you're gonna abuse your power to arrest all your political enemies yeah, you're right. <laughs> I've never heard that before. This is the first time that's ever happened. That that right there is a big concern. That's the sort of thing that everyone should have gone, wait, hey, hang on a second. Did Sean yeah. Hannity just ask Donald Trump if he's going to be a dictator? And and he says, and, and Trump replies, yeah, on day one I am. <laughs> okay, you know what? This should be banner headlines at the top of every newspaper of record in the country. This should have been on the tips of everyone's tongue. Everyone should have been talking about this over the water cooler. But we're all like, ah, oh, there goes Trump again. This is a thing, another Trump thing, you know, that no one cares about now. We're just you know, we've normalized right. this idea that he's going to be dictator for life is what he's going to be. And, and those are the stakes of this election. That's why, that's why if you're voting based on the fact that gas is a little more expensive than you'd like it to be, my God, my what is going to happen as a consequence of that short sighted impetus to uh, vote in the next election? You got to look at the long term consequences. And one of them is this will be the last time you get a chance to vote. If Donald Trump wins, you will not be able to say, well, you know, what? that extra four years that Donald Trump got. Ah, never mind. We're going to vote him out or yeah. we, 
it's not it, well first of all he can't run for re-election again but he's going to try right. there's not going to be another opportunity to weigh in on the republican party after 2024 if donald True. trump wins that's going to be the end of <laughs> you know democracy at least at that level uh if he so, wins yes if if he right, wins right right and he's admitting it. I mean, the thing is, he's saying it out loud. He's saying it in his rallies. He's saying that he deserves a redo of his first term. He's saying that he's going to investigate the 2020 election and redo the 2020 election. He's been saying that publicly, not just once, not just twice, but he's been saying the thing about a redo since the 2020 campaign. That's right. And he's been repeating it in his subsequent rallies. So. You know, okay. these are the sorts of things that, right, right, that he's well, saying. Well, so, so here, here, here's where I get kind of kind of turned around. You know, George W. Yeah. Bush used to have this thing I called the drool test, where uh, we'd all talk about how stupid he was, and then he'd show up at the debate, and he would not physically drool on the podium, and we'd all say, <laughs> oh, look, see, he's fine. He's just a man yeah. of be- slightly below normal average intelligence. Not, not an idiot at all. And it kind of feels like Trump is doing the same thing. He'll play up the dictator thing on the stump, and then show up and be like, oh, no, he's just a lying authoritarian who thinks he's being funny when he threat you know like like literally trying to play against type and make it cute i think i'd be more worried about this if i really thought donald trump could be president again but bob the only thing that scares me is the fact that right now we're we're looking at opec cutting oil production which is what donald Mm. trump had them do during covid and it's why joe biden had to contend with high oil prices the thing that scares me i don't think donald trump can beat joe biden but i do think six dollars a gallon a year from now can yeah, well, so speaking of that, Donald Trump said, uh, I think it was over the weekend at, uh, God, was it a rally or an interview? I think it was a rally where he it just said into a microphone, yeah, I talked to Russia and I talked to the Saudis and I said, you know what? Gas prices are too low. Let's get these gas prices up higher. I mean, he, <laughs> he, li- did. I mean, he, he really actually did. said it. He did. I'm going to raise gas prices. Yeah. And so but everyone's Newsmax like, well, will not be bl- playing that. Newsmax will not play that clip. Most of Trump supporters will never know he said that. That's right. And meanwhile, everyone's going, man, we got to punish Joe Biden for three dollar gas or whatever it happens to be in your area. So that's I mean, that's um, this is one of those things that we have to just keep repeating and repeating and repeating what the stakes are, what reality is, what the actual condition of the economy is and where it's going. And, you know, we don't need to necessarily indict anyone's opinion or feelings about, you know, their personal financial situation. But I think what we can do is continue to inject the truth about the various economic indicators showing a strong economy, showing a growing economy, and just keep repeating, repeating, repeating over and over again. And I think that will have a positive benefit for next year. Bob, we're going to be talking very shortly with uh, Congressman Swalwell on the show tonight about uh, what happened with Speaker McCarthy. But our good friend and your co-host on one of your shows, Mary Trump, uh, has said that um, Kevin McCarthy's visit to Mar-a-Lago in January ended his career. It sent an important message, not only to Donald, but more importantly to the entire Republican caucus. McCarthy is a sucker, a rube, a pushover, a sycophant who will do anything to be near power from that moment on. McCarthy could never command their respect. Is she right? I think she's right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this is one of those situations where Kevin McCarthy and people who are sort of Kevin McCarthy adjacent feel as though they can keep a pet shark and that shark's never going to bite them. And that's what they tried to do. They tried to, you know, pet their pet shark and maybe dr- try to dress up their pet shark in a little outfit. And th- obviously, the shark ate Kevin McCarthy. And that shark, of course, is 
the Red Hat Republicans, Matt Gates, and all the others who, you know, just want to devour people for sport. I mean, that's essentially what we're seeing now in the House of Representatives. If you're not in line with Donald Trump, 100% across the board, unless unless you're on board with the MAGA agenda in every way, shape, or form, which Kevin McCarthy kind of was. There's just a couple of areas budgetarily where he tried to do something sensible, which is to keep the government operating and not shutting down the government, which people would blame the Republicans for just ahead of a presidential election. Mm-hmm. Year. And, and, and that was his fatal flaw. That was the thing. He thought, well, you know what? I could at least reach into the tank and give the shark a little pat on the head or, all right, you know, it's just like, he's not, it was one of those things where he knew that this was going to get him into trouble. And right. he knew that there were going to be repercussions for this. I mean, it was clear when he tried to become speaker in the first place, and it was a failure, 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 vote after vote after vote. And uh, and so now it was highly predictable that after this humiliation that he was going to skulk his way out of there, just like Paul Ryan, just like John just like Banner. Eric, Eric Hanter, all the young Eric guns. Hanter, yeah. Right. All the young they guns. They were I all about. chewed yeah. up and spit out by the same racist, racist right wing fringe they tried yeah. so many years to control. You know, they rode right. this wave against Obama. They turned a blind eye to all the racism and all the lies and all the corruption. They went along with Donald Trump. They kept cultivating this MAGA base, went back when they were the Tea Party base. And eventually they weren't evil enough. They tried to ride the yeah. wave and the wave ate them. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's some any sort of normalcy is what the uh, rodeo clown caucus goes after. If you say, well, I'm going to try to do something a little bit normal here. Well, you've you've got to die then. I mean, that's it. You're yeah, you're completely screwed. And now Kevin McCarthy's gone and probably someone even worse is going to step into his place. I mean, Bakersfield. It's going to be some sort of MAGA red hat Republican. Yeah, I got to say, Kevin McCarthy makes me ashamed of all those years I spent cooking and selling meth in Bakersfield. Bob, really quick, we've only got a minute. Um, Liz Cheney, everyone's favorite liberal Democrat, Liz Cheney. She's on Mm -hmm. the talk show circuit. She was with Maddow just two nights ago. She's doing her thing against Trump. No one's really sure what the end game here is going to be. Um, What do you make of Liz Cheney's warnings? I think we need to take them seriously. But you know what? They're not necessarily for you and me. They're not for those of us who are following politics 24-7. Her warnings are for the folks, the people who only casually look at politics, who vote in every election, who participate, but who are only hearing about news events as they're walking by the TV and cable news happens to be on. Yeah. And so Liz Cheney's warnings are for them, and they're the ones who need to be convinced. They're the ones who need to be coaxed, as I was saying before. They need to be coaxed away from voting based on some sort of misperception of the economy and vote based on the fact that if they don't vote for Joe Biden, it's going to be their last vote. Yeah. And worse. And so in along those lines, well, she also added that once that happens, Donald Trump is going to appoint the craziest people into cabinet level positions. And we can count on that. He's going to stack the uh, all the ca- cabinet secretaries are all going to be acting secretary, the acting people. And even yep. if he goes to get advice and consent from the Senate to approve his cabinet appointees, do you think he's going to listen to what the Senate says? If the Senate says, no, you can't have that. 
particular nominee, he's not going to pay any attention to that. He's going to do whatever the hell he wants, and he's going to have a federal bureaucracy stacked with loyalists in order to back You're him right. up when he does that. He will if he's elected, which will never happen. Let's add that little caveat there. I just, <laughs> okay. I just, I'm All sorry. Right. I don't. I don't think it's going to happen. I don't think anyone's going to vote for Biden, but I goddamn sure think people are going to vote against Trump. Mr. Seska, yeah. you're the smartest and the most moral and the sexiest and the tallest <laughs> man in the room. And you cheated all of those things. How do our listeners follow you and keep up with your excellent work? Uh, you can follow my podcast on my Patreon page, as you said before. Thank you very much, by the way. Patreon.com slash Bob Seska Show and everywhere you get your podcasts, all the different platforms. Bob, you make it look easy. Thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thanks, my we'll friend. We'll see you next week. Happy December. Quick break. We'll be right back with all Yazal's calls here on Progress After Dark. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. Coming up later this hour, Congressman Eric Swalwell talking about his very strange week of saying goodbye to both George Santos and Kevin McCarthy. But first, I'm so pleased to welcome our next guest. As many of you will remember, in 1989... A man named Charles Stewart and his pregnant wife, Carol, were carjacked and allegedly shot by uh, a black man. And the city of Boston and the nation were gripped by the hunt for the suspect. And of course, it later turned out that Charles Stewart shot and murdered his own pregnant wife and shot himself. But the crime and the aftermath and the institutions that swallowed the lies exposed many unpleasant truths about the beautiful city and the country that very few people wanted to confront. Truths about crime and punishment and race and class. And in a new original podcast and multimedia series, a team of Boston Globe investigative journalists, including our guest, Adrian Walker, a Boston Globe columnist and associate editor, who reported on the murder when it first happened in 1989, tell the untold story of Mission Hill and the Stewart shootings, and they expose how both the police and the media got it so shocking and systemically wrong. It is a great pleasure to welcome Adrian Walker to SiriusXM. Good evening and thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I must commend you. Uh, the podcast is great and the multimedia series uh, on the web is fantastic. You you literally, you and your team have found a way to make history and journalism come alive aesthetically and it's, it's terrific. And there's also Murder in Boston, the nine-part original investigative podcast that is being produced along with HBO. Uh, you've been very, very busy with this for quite a while. And in the intro for the podcast, you talk about how it's time to tell the story the right way. 
I guess the most basic question I can start with is, what do you think went wrong with the initial coverage of the case? Or has time just given us better perspective on the events and how the media responded? A bit of both, but I think we have to say honestly that there was a lot wrong with the original coverage. You know, I mean, the story was just wrong. And I you know, vividly remember the morning he went off the bridge, uh, which we'll get to in January of 1990, and just realizing that two months of stories had to have been. You know, there were suspects who were identified, but the evidence against them was so thin, there weren't enough questions about it. But the biggest difference between the coverage then and the coverage now, I'm proud to say, is the way we've really centered what happened in Mission Hill and the way it affected the people in that. What kind of reporting were you doing on the investigation back then? I mean, I, I know already that it seems like the competitive pressure of your work was so extreme. The Globe and the Herald were in a competition. People wanted to beat the TV journalism, all that kind of stuff. And it certainly seems like it would have been very easy for all kinds of journalists, not just people on the ground there to go with the flow and make mistakes. But what was your reporting like and what was your experience on the beat back in 89? Well, I was five months into my Globe career. I started in May of 89. And, uh, you know, I basically just went wherever anybody told me. Um, right. So, you know, we had other people who had all kinds of sources and law enforcement and access that I did not have. So, you know, I was basically a warm body. I can imagine. I can imagine. But it seems like it was a, a very challenging gig for a young journalist uh, to say nothing of the fact that there was so much pressure on everyone to get scoops more and more. I mean, I remember the media frenzy about this. And for God's sakes, Marky Mark was was rapping about this back at the time. It was really a, a, a crazy, crazy moment in American journalism history. Well, it was an amazing way to be introduced to your new city. I can tell you that. And uh, uh, yeah, the, head of the competition is just unbelievable. And as you've pointed out, like roughly three quarters of people who live in Boston right now probably didn't live in Boston back in 1989. What has surprised me is for how many people this story is still really, really new. You know, this is one of the reasons I was really excited to do it, just that realization. And when we first started talking about this two, two and a half years ago, I started just talking, you know, asking 30 years to live in the city. When I say the word, Charles, when I say the name Charles Stewart, what does it mean to you? and getting blank stares. And to me, that was confirmation that, th yeah. that it was time to go back and take a look at this. Well, the series opens with a recording of Stewart's call to 911, and then it does something I didn't expect. It really goes into the roots of Boston's race relations. And the first episode shows how tensions were really high 28 years before this happened over school desegregation in the early 70s. And it introduces us to a character uh, a lot of people wouldn't know, State Representative Ray Flynn, who was at the time a, a real beacon of hope and racial conciliation at the time. What made you want to open the show in the early 1970s? And why was it important to introduce Representative Flynn as a character for the overall narrative? Well, it was really important because we needed to show that the roots of this went back before 1989, you know, the sort of the ground was laid for this. And it, it was rooted in all that racial tension that came out of school busing. You know, I've described in columns Boston Civil War. It was just, it was an incredibly intense and divisive time. And Ray Flynn, as you say, was the state representative from South Boston at the time. You know, he kind of switched sides. He was against busing at the beginning, but he came to realize that the city needed to come together. And in 1983, he runs for mayor and wins. So now he's leading the city at the time of Stewart. Right. Ray Flynn is sort of the link between busing and Stewart. In a way. 
it's, it's fascinating to think about. I mean, I, I lived in Boston briefly in the 1980s, and the, the racial tensions are famously celebrated and talked about more than the fact that Martin Luther King went to BU for one of his degrees. Uh, I'm really curious, what is your memory of what the media fury was like back then? There were, it, it was just astonishing how so many people, especially in the Boston Police Department, never once questioned the, uh, Charles Stewart's account of what happened. It must have been very, very strange for you as a young reporter trying to find the truth during all of this. It really was. And the question seems so obvious, you know, for, there was one suspect in the beginning, Alan Swanson, and then later they were saying Willie Bennett was a suspect. But the odd thing to me as a reporter, and I had covered cops in Miami before I came here, that he was never charged, right? Yeah. So day after yep. day goes by and talking about him, talking about him, you know, we know who did it, we know he did it. And I'm like, where's the charge? And that was the red flag to me that this case was not what it was cracked up to me. I mean, black residents in Mission Hill had terrible police scrutiny after all of this and incredible surveillance. And then, as you mentioned, law enforcement homed in on this man, Willie Bennett, who was black uh, as the suspect. Ultimately, as people know, um, he confessed. Uh, Matthew Stewart actually confessed in 1990 that he helped his brother Charles hide the gun that was used to murder Carol. And the Bennett family never got a public apology, did they? No, they never got an apology. And this was just horrible for them. I mean, it destroyed Willie Bennett's life. And it's it's something they've dragged around for 34 years. I mean, they, they the Boston police never admitted they did anything wrong. And the media didn't really run any corrections to their journalism about this poor man, did they? That's right. That's right. And it's beyond never admitting they did anything wrong. I mean, I know cops, you know, retired cops now, who say to this day, oh, I think Willie Bennett had something to do with it. And there is not a scintilla of evidence anywhere that Willie Bennett yeah. had anything. There well, are guys who that. are still clinging to this. Well, I want to get to that because that's one of the most fascinating and creepily racist parts of this whole narrative. But I'm curious, did Willie Bennett's family, they sued the city in federal and state courts, didn't they? Um, how did their years of litigation go to try to clear uh, they, Mr. Bennett's name? They sued the city in federal and state court. They got a paltry settlement of $12,500 which is absolutely nothing several years later. And, uh, you know, that was yeah. it. No apology. No, they've never gotten anything substantive. Yeah. I mean, they, they it's more insulting than if it was nothing. I know that Ray Flynn went to their house uh, for a brief visit, but apparently it was just really, really brief. And this man was just railroaded. Apparently and... he didn't even sit down. Really? He didn't wow. even sit down. He kind I mean, of walked it... in and said sorry and turned around and walked out. At least that's the way the Bennett's were calling. I mean, it really seems like one of the reasons this podcast and series had to happen was because there's never been a, a, a reckoning, a moral or legal reckoning with this case in the beautiful town of Boston. Has there been? There's never been an apology. This family never got anything. You know, there's a former state senator named, named Diane Wilkerson who represented Roxbury Area and Mission Hill, among other areas. And when I called her and talked about it, she's... She said, I'm so glad you called because at some point we just stopped talking about the story. There was no resolution. There was no anything. We just all moved. on, And that's actually part of the tragedy. I'm curious what it was like for you to revisit this story and, I mean, do such a deep dive. You've done such beautiful, comprehensive work here with so many interviews with journalists and historians and people who were affected by the crime and, and city officials. 
I'm curious, um, what surprised you while you were revisiting this story? Did anything jump out and, and was it very different or much more starkly obvious to you now? Yeah, the biggest surprise to me was how many people knew. We have calculated that 33 people knew at some stage before Chuck Stewart, before the story unwrapped, that Stewart did it. And none of them did anything. I mean, there was one sort of half-baked call to a cop who didn't do anything, but really none of them did it. And that was astonishing. I would have guessed three people, four people, God knows not 33. I remember that Jet Magazine at one point called in a boycott of Boston media for how badly this was mishandled. And um, if you listen to the episode where you get to know retired Boston detective Bill Dunn, you'll understand a bit of this outrage. I mean, this man was involved in the investigation. He's featured in the podcast and the documentary. And he's the one who at one point of your show says, we'll never know who murdered Carol Stewart and that the police never got a chance to finish the investigation. Sir, is this still an open case? Uh, do you consider this to still be an open case after the white man's only, brother confessed? Not only is this not an open case, it's one of the most preposterous things you can say. I mean, he says, you know, we never got a chance to finish the investigation. Well, the brother went to the police and the next and said, you know, Chuck did it. And the next morning, Chuck jumps off the Tobin Bridge. That would end any homicide investigation. OK, right? it would. There's no mystery here. There's no mystery. His brother went to the cops, said he did it, and the next day, Charles jumped off the bridge and killed himself. Even Marky Mark in the rap song says, that's it. That ends any murder investigation. It just sounds like some, not all, but some of these law enforcement just can't let go of the racism. They just have to cling to the belief that even though we know it was a white man who did it and he committed suicide in shame, they still want to believe a non-white person did this. It just seems like they'd rather cling to the lie than have the dignity to face the truth. That's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. And clinging is the word. They're just clinging to it all these years. Yeah. Like the ones who still say, oh, we don't know where Barack Obama was born. He claims it was Hawaii. They can't let go of that 1% they got to hang on to. I want to thank you for including, uh, in addition to reexamining the shooting and its aftermath, including all the interviews with Mission Hill residents who were impacted by the police raids and all the chaos of the investigation. Why did you want to focus on people who lived in the neighborhood and center uh, a good chunk of the podcast around their experiences? For two reasons. One, they're the thing that was overlooked in the original reporting. But also, I've talked to people in Mission Hill about this for years. I've written about the case often before this series, and I know people who were there and talked to them. And it's so traumatic to this day. I mean, talk about people who still carry this around. Everybody's got a story about, you know, that two months of getting strip searched or having their house, you know, blown into by the police or whatever it is. And nothing was ever the same for them. And none of them ever got anything they deserved in terms of an apology or anything that might be considered vacant. And it was horrifying, right? I mean, this was just people were just getting stopped and, and having their homes searched and just, I mean, it was just open season uh, for suspicion with no evidence. Yeah, it really was. Yes, exactly. All, in, all in the service of this lie. Yeah. Um, now, by the early 1990s, the dust had settled us on this thing, and, and the Boston PD, to their credit, tried to figure out how the detectives got things so wrong and, and whether the cops broke any rules uh, or laws when they were trying to find the real killer. How did that go? I, I know that the head of the homicide unit had sat down with internal affairs and just was steadfast the cops had done nothing wrong. The head of the homicide unit got a uh, five-day suspension, I think it was, 
for swearing in some of the inter- interrogations. And that was the end of the punishment. I mean, that was the full extent of anything. They basically investigated themselves and decided they'd done nothing wrong. Now, there was also an investigation by the U.S. attorney, which found that they'd done plenty wrong, but that they hadn't necessarily met the standards for for prosecuting anybody under federal civil rights statutes. So basically, there was never any accountability. You know, the podcast highlights how the cops and the politicians and then the media all had roles in this thing spinning out and becoming chaotic and driven by lies. But I've been dying to ask you, do you think any one entity deserves the lion's share of the blame? Obviously, Charles Stewart. But does anyone deserve the lion's share of the blame for getting this so wrong? No, I really believe it's kind of evenly distributed. I think all of us bear some culpability. Government does, the police do, and and the media does as well. I wouldn't say that the lion's share of it necessarily belongs in places. Although, you know, I mean, the police have a greater share of responsibility. I mean, they were the ones who failed to really investigate the crime. They were the ones who bought it and pushed it. You know, if 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 there's a lion's share to be attributed, it goes to the Boston Police Department. Yeah. I mean, how do you rate the national media as compared to the Boston regional media? I mean, it wasn't any better, but the national media did what they do. They parachuted in, they walked around town for a couple of days, and they left. What has surprised you about the response for people who might not have been around Boston or followed the story or might not even have been alive at the time of these events? What, what, is, what kind of responses have you been getting from people about the podcast and the series? There's a huge response, and it's so gratifying. But, uh, you know, people are really devouring the story. One of the ways we measure you know, public reaction to story is sort of engagement time and mm-hmm. kind of how, how long people spend on stories. Yeah. It's been 15 minutes, which is unheard of. I mean, people are just going there and staying in there, really reading the stories. I've gotten tons of emails, calls. And everybody's just glad we did it. You know, even yeah. people say it's really painful, but I'm reading it. I'm asking my daughters to read it. This is a conversation we in the city need to have. So from where I sit, the response couldn't be better. I'm glad. You know, I got to ask about something you said a a couple of minutes ago. Um, We know that his brother knew and his brother confessed to helping hide the gun used to murder his his pregnant wife. And of course, they they did deliver the baby and the baby died only what like two weeks later. Right. The the 17 days. 17 days later. So, I mean, obviously, there's these are still open wounds. But you had said what surprised you the most was how many other people knew. Who knew and how did their deception manifest itself in your research and reporting? Well, the, the Stuart siblings all knew, you know, the brother had a friend who helped dispose of the gun. So he knew their girlfriends mm. knew their girlfriends told people it was that kind of thing. Just amazing. Just amazing. Is there any kind of justice that needs to take place for Willie Bennett and, and his family? Is there any kind of justice that could do justice to what this man and his family went through. You know, one of the most moving interviews I was involved in for this project was with Willie Bennett's younger sister, Vita. And one of the things we asked her was, what would justice look like for you? Yes. And her, and her answer basically was, there's nothing that would bring me justice, but I do want to tell our story. I just want people to hear our story. She speaks so movingly about the terror of having the cops come into her house. And I have to thank you, sir, because that was a side of the story that I never would have heard or known about 
were it not for this series. So let, let me just. She ask said, you, "I you know, haven't had a full night's sleep since 1989." Yeah, I mean, she has every right to be as angry as she is. I don't know what justice could possibly look like for this family. In closing, I want to thank you for doing this series because these, like you point out, are wounds that still haven't healed. And it shows how easy it is for a lie to be believed by people who have been groomed by society to be susceptible to believing lies. But what is your fondest hope that you wish people would take away from this new series and podcast? My fondest hope in Boston is that we will have the conversation we didn't have in 1990 and 91 and 92, because we still need to have it. We still need to talk about how this happened, why it happened, why so many people believed it. And that question you just raised, what now would justice look like? Adrian Walker is a Boston Globe columnist and associate editor. Murder in Boston is the nine-part original investigative podcast that's produced by The Globe and presented along with HBO re-examining the case. And again, I can't say this enough, the, the interactive piece The Globe has done for the web is an amazing read, and the technology is, it just, it literally makes the story come alive on the screen. Uh, thank you and your entire team for putting forward such terrific and innovative journalism. Thank you so much, and thanks for having me on tonight. This platform is always open to you, and we thank you for your work. Have a great evening, sir. Very much. Thank you. we got to take a quick break. We'll be back in just a moment, followed by Congressman Eric Swalwell and taking your calls all night long at 866-997-4748. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity line of credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. Welcome back. I am so pleased to finally welcome to the show for the first time the U.S. Representative for California's 14th Congressional District, Eric Swalwell, who serves on the House Judiciary and Homeland Security Committees. You might remember him from being part of the second Senate trial as an impeachment manager for the former host of Celebrity Apprentice Donald Trump. Congressman Swalwell, welcome. It's great to have you. Hey, thanks, John, for having me on. And thank you to you and your viewers for what uh, you all are doing. Well, thank you. I want you to know, sir, as a comedian, I've decided to forgive the Democratic Party for getting rid of George Santos. It was rough for a couple of days for me, but I, I'm looking at the greater picture here. Are you at all surprised, sir, about uh, speak, former Speaker McCarthy's announcement today? No, not at all. In fact, I had uh, I predicted this uh, a couple of days ago. And actually, what I was seeing, just the, the, he was no longer showing up to vote. He was, you know, throwing sharp elbows, literally. Uh, into the backs of his colleagues. Uh, he just didn't seem like a guy that um, was going to be up for uh, sticking around with the people who threw him out. And by the way, look, he did a deal with a bunch of loan sharks just to become speaker. And when they called in, you know, the loan, he couldn't pay up. And and so, uh, of course, he was going to skip town, uh, you know, as soon as they asked him to pay up. So I'm not I'm not surprised at all. That's a great way of putting it. And I fear that your current Speaker of the House is in the same predicament. It seems like we have an ex-president who controls the Speaker's gavel, and he's ordered the new guy to impeach Biden, whether there's evidence or not, to not approve aid to Ukraine, because that's how Vladimir Putin wants it, and of course, to rescue himself 
from the Justice Department. Uh, I, I am starting to get the yeah, feeling. Mike, Please. Mike Johnson, uh, you know, a big, big believer in conversion therapy, uh, probably <laughs> because uh, he is of the converted, right? He called Donald Trump dangerous, uh, you know, during the 2016 campaign. Uh, and now he's doing everything he can, uh, you know, to bend the knee and help uh, Donald Trump. So it's the only case where conversion therapies work. So I guess maybe that explains uh, why he's all in uh, to try and yeah. aim it at others. I'm putting together a GoFundMe to uh, to buy Mike Johnson uh, a Bible with the Jesus parts there, because I'm not sure he's gotten right. to that right. part of the book yet. Um, you are one of the few representatives, sir, I've always wanted to thank you for this, who's had the guts to call what we witnessed on January 6th terrorism. By the dictionary definition of violence or threat of violence against civilian targets to change policy, it was terrorism. And we're in a week where the new speaker is trying to help these people cover up violent crimes. This is a man who played a prominent role in trying to wreck our democracy in 2020, led the fight for the amicus brief to reject the will of American voters in two states, and as you know, dodges questions about his role in the big lie. Now this week he's announcing he's going to release the January 6th footage while blurring the faces of the rioters and terrorists that day. His reason was so the DOJ can't go after them, but we all know the DOJ already has that footage. From here, sir, it seems like Speaker Johnson is very much where Speaker McCarthy was, in a desperate place of knowing he has to work with your caucus to keep the government running, but needing to throw any kind of red meat to the far right of his base. You're right. It's a cover-up effort uh, on behalf of his supporters, his friends, and you know their you know MAGA nation that attacked uh, the Capitol. And and you know, look on January sixth and, and leading up to it, you had the hustle and the muscle and you know doj has gone after you know most of the muscle those are the you know the terrorists who violently attacked the capitol uh harmed police officers terrorized uh, myself and my colleagues uh, but the hustle uh that was you know people like speaker johnson who were the architect of the idea that you could even overturn uh the election and, and of course donald trump you know who was the leader of, of the hustle effort uh who incited inspired and aimed the mob you know, at uh, the Capitol. And, and so this effort now, uh, well, and, and actually, I think if you connect the dots here, John. Yes, sir. He released some footage a couple of weeks ago, and there were reports that he may have thought that he was uncovering a conspiracy, but instead it only led to more people sending in tips to the FBI of, oh, I, I think I recognize that guy, or I, I know <laughs> that guy. That's why he's blurring the faces. Exactly. Is because exactly. he's covering up on the behalf of terrorists who attacked the Capitol, and, and we can't call it out enough. Yeah, he's thwarting law enforcement to obstruct justice in real time. And it, it seems like he's he's a bit in a panic. He doesn't really have any skills that Speaker McCarthy lacked. He's going to have to work with Democrats while trying any way he can to pander to the far right. And this week, uh, no less a figure of letters than Troy Niels admitted that the Biden impeachment stunt is just to give Trump a little bit of ammo to fire back. So they're they're admitting it. Considering all this, sir, can the Democratic House have any legislative hopes for 2024? I mean, beyond not having the government shut down, do you have any optimism for anything happening legislatively before the next election? You know, that they don't want to govern, that they want to rule. And, and, and in their rule, they want to protect uh, one person, that's Donald Trump. And, and they want to rule over your freedoms. Uh, if you're a woman, uh, the freedom of your body. Uh, you know, if you're a voter, uh, the freedom to vote and have that vote counted. 
they're taking away our kids' freedom to, you know, um, live in peace and security at their schools and to come home uh, safely. They're taking away the freedom to read what you want to read, you know, by banning uh, books. Uh, so this is not a governing party. Uh, it's a it's a ruling party. And we just have to get through, you know, to November. And the way I see it, John, is democracy just has to live long enough so it can live forever. Uh, because we have shown since 16 that people who care about democracy, Democrats, independents, Republicans, have shown up and beaten back MAGA almost every time since right. 2016. And, and so I think if we can just get over this upcoming election uh, and, and, and crest over it, uh, that we will bury MAGAism and, and we'll give democracy the best chance uh, to live on. Uh, but we have to get past uh, this upcoming uh, November. How do you feel about the party's chances based on 2018, 2020 and 2022? It's clear ideologically the American people are on our side and it all comes down to turnout. To me, Congressman, the real villain here is uh, a, a corporate media culture that has lots of responsible journalists who care about democracy, but is owned by a machine that really wants its Donald Trump sized ratings back. I think the president's going to be reelected. What are your thoughts and, and what are your fears? He's going to be reelected. And I would rather be us uh, than them. And uh, you know what? If the, the best attack they have on Joe Biden is that he's 81, uh, I would say, you know, you know what number uh, is lower or is higher than 81? It's 91. 91 uh, felony counts that Donald <laughs> Trump is under. And so if you want an 81 year old who's delivered, you know, competence and, and brought community and collaboration to the country uh, or somebody who has brought absolute chaos and corruption, the country is going to go with the competent 81 year old. And, and so it's just a matter of doing what we've done over the last uh, seven years, organizing, mobilizing and making sure that people understand these freedoms uh, are at stake. Also, financial freedom, right? Uh, you know, having Please. affordability and breathing room in your personal finances. You know, one guy is fighting, you know, to, uh, you know, tackle health care costs and, and make them more affordable for you did that with the inflation reduction act and the other one you know would give the biggest tax savings you know to billionaires at the cost of middle class families I, so when it comes down to two candidates uh, I, I know what the voters are going to do i'm excited to see it happen i'm not going to take it for granted but i'm not going to be anxious about it because our confidence yeah. begets confidence uh, and, and our volunteerism Correct. and activism begets more volunteerism and activism so we should hold our heads high leaning into this election uh, and not cower one bit. I've never seen message discipline like the Democratic caucus in the 2018 election. When no one talked about Russia on the campaign trail, they let the media do that. Folks focused on health care and education. And that was a winner. Sir, I'm curious. It's going to be a crazy year, like you said. We'll have this election. We'll have these primaries. We're going to have seven criminal trials for Donald Trump, the four big ones, and then the three civil trials that are going on as well. What would you like to see the Democratic Party focus on in their messaging to try to reach people who showed up last time as a protest vote for Trump, but aren't feeling the enthusiasm this time? Yeah, it, again, this election is entirely about freedom. And as I said, one party that wants to govern uh, and expand freedom and one party that wants to rule and take it away. And the one that I think is going to be paramount uh, is freedom of body. And, and there's a lot of pissed off women right now who see a former president who put three votes on the Supreme Court 
that took away a core freedom. Uh, and so I, I, I dare, uh, you know, Republicans, you know, to run on that record uh, in 2024, because we've seen from Kansas to Michigan to Ohio that when that is on the ballot, uh, people show up, uh, women uh, and their uh, male allies are showing up to protect that freedom. And, and the, as I said, the architect uh, who uh, put those justices on the Supreme Court, he's on the ballot and, and women are going to show up to make sure he doesn't add more justices to take away more freedoms. I've always wanted to ask you, Congressman, about your relationships with your GOP colleagues in the House. I, I always wonder how your fellow congressmen and women view MAGA, view Donald Trump, and view what their party has become when they're off the record and behind closed doors. You've, you've got to have sane, opportunist colleagues who are real with you, right? Oh, the, yeah, there's MAGA, and then there's make-believe. MAGA. Speaker Johnson, by the way, is MAGA. He, he's all in. Yeah. He believes it. Yeah. But I deal with a lot of folks who know better, uh, but they look at this like pro wrestling, that when we are in the quote unquote ring, you know, in a committee hearing on the House floor, during the television interview, you have to take on this MAGA persona and you, you swing a steel chair around the ring, you beat up the Democrats. But when the cameras are off and the crowd goes home, backstage you can just talk like your real self to democrats right. ted cruz is the, the biggest offender of this by the way every please, please tell I us see, about this no no every time i see ted cruz he's a completely different guy i, I saw that during the senate uh, trial the second impeachment trial house members are on the senate floor trying the case we're on a bathroom break i'm at the sink he's at the sink next to me this guy looks at me leans over, puts his fist out and says, hey, I'm Ted to try and fist bump me. And I'm looking at him. I'm like, are you kidding me? This guy last night had just name checked me on Fox News and now he's trying to fist bump me in the Senate. And so I give him this kind of like slow fist bump and say, hey, Ted. And he goes, I want you to know you guys are doing a really good job out there. And, and I looked at him like he had three heads at this point. And he said, no, I mean it. I really mean it. You guys are doing a good job out there. And I, I just, I couldn't believe it. And, and then I realized, wait, we're not in front of a camera. He's not in front of his colleagues. And he's just being himself. But when he goes back into the Senate chamber or back on Fox News, he's got to put on that MAGA persona and swing the steel chair around and, you know, just give a beating uh, to democracy. And, and then the problem is he thinks the people who are watching us are fans. I think that they're constituents. And... He also doesn't un understand that they think this is all real. And so if they think it's all real, then you have a January 6th because Ted Cruz is saying, you know, we have to, uh, you know, basically not let this happen. And, and they don't know that he's just a MAGA persona. I think you're exactly right. And in a way, it's completely consistent for someone like Ted Cruz, who will show up and use insincere flattery to make himself feel more comfortable in a situation. We've seen him do it on TV many times. But this is a guy who was just badmouthing you just this week uh, in the most demeaning, childish, <laughs> puerile ways possible. I won't even get into the specifics. You know what I'm talking about. 
And, and I just wonder, how do you, sir, deal with the amount of hate you get from our Republican brothers and sisters? I have always admired the way that you are fearless in the media culture and that you come to them with facts and empathy. I've never seen you be hateful to anyone. And I know firsthand, uh, I probably experience one-tenth of the hate you receive on a daily basis. I'm, I'm curious on a personal and professional level. How do you take that kind of negativity in and keep on going? So I, I don't take it personally, meaning I don't let it affect what I'm going to do and it doesn't intimidate me. But I do protect myself and my family and my staff because I know they are the ones that could you know, really pay the price from uh, these threats. And it doesn't get in the way of, as I said, what I have to do. And, and, and the fact that Donald Trump or Kevin McCarthy, you know, focus so much energy on me uh, tells me that I'm effective. And, and that's why uh, they want to silence me or Adam Schiff or some of these other targets uh, that they go after is, is, you know, they're not calling you out because you're ineffective. They're calling you out because they perceive you exactly. as effective. And so, uh, look, I'm on a mission uh, and you're on a mission and your viewers are on a mission. And, and that's to make sure uh, that uh, this upcoming election, uh, we see the renewal and continuation of democracy and not its last chapter. And so we're all authors uh, in how that is written and what the ending looks like. Uh, and so I'm in this, uh, you know, to make sure that I do my part. One final question, Congressman, and thank you again so much. I'm so glad we could make this happen. You and several Capitol Police officers did sue Donald Trump for his role in the insurrection. And I'm curious what might be the status of that suit? Well, we had a big uh, victory last week. Uh, and so it, it's this idea that Donald Trump should be held accountable for inciting and aiming the mob at the Capitol to harm police officers and, and to stop me and my colleagues from counting the votes and, and terrorizing us uh, in the process. And so he claimed, Donald Trump claimed he had immunity, uh, a crazy claim right, that because he's president, he could do that. And the district court said no, uh, that your immunity is not as absolute as you think. He appealed it to the Court of Appeals. That's the court just under the Supreme Court. And in a unanimous opinion with Republican and democratically appointed judges, uh, they also said no. And, and so we're just waiting now to see if he's going to appeal it uh, further or if we're going to be uh, in depositions and discovery to learn more about what Donald Trump did and did not do on January 6th and the days leading up to it. And again, it's entirely about accountability. Uh, right. And whether it's my case or uh, these other civil and criminal cases, you're seeing this tapestry of cases uh, that are bringing accountability to Donald Trump. And then that tapestry stitched together, I think, is a security blanket uh, for our democracy and rule of law. Congressman Eric Swalwell, I want to thank you for your service, but even more, I want to thank you for the inspiration you give and the strength you give to so many Americans who are overwhelmed by all this negativity in Michigas. Thanks for all you do, and please come back anytime. This platform is always open. To My you. pleasure. Thank you, John. Thank you to your listeners. Have a great one. Take care. Peace.